You're listening to Fundshack. I'm Ross Butler, and this episode of the Fundshack podcast is from our back catalogue recorded in March 2019, but it's never been released before on podcast platforms. And as it turns out, in private equity years, this is a mere blink of an eye. So in this holiday season, I thought you might appreciate a thousand-year perspective on private equity. Hans Lovrecht structured the first Austrian private equity funds in the late 1990s. Since then, he has allocated almost 500 million euros to around 70 different private equity funds. He is currently an advisor to several of the larger Austrian private equity programs through his consulting practice, Commenda Private Equity. I first came across Hans when he gave a presentation drawing on some very interesting parallels between merchant trading of the Middle Ages and current private equity practices. And I was really intrigued to hear some more. So he joins me now from Vienna. Hans, these are fascinating parallels between the the medieval commander, after which you named your firm, of course, and modern private equity. Can you tell us a little bit more? Well, it's interesting maybe how I came across uh, uh, these parallels. It was probably in the year 2004 or 5, when, as you said, I was looking for a name for my advisory company. And I was doing, I was studying history and doing research in the history of bankruptcy which in itself is an interesting topic. And I found um, among the assets of some bankrupt Florentine banks, I found those commanders. And after uh, uncovering my, my um, school Latin and reading those contracts, I was amazed uh, how similar uh, they were uh, to the LPAs uh, uh, I was concerned with in my everyday work. Uh, And uh, so over time, my my focus very quickly changed uh, from uh, the history of bankruptcy to those uh, commende. And and I went to my professor and and he liked uh, to tease me because I was uh, uh, one of his older students. And he said, Hansi, that's again so clever. If you can explain to me uh, the different, why, where those similarities uh, come from, um, you come back. And so um, I came back a year later uh, after reading uh, um, Douglas North uh, and Oliver Williams who got Nobel Prizes and and kind of the theory to explain those similarities is um, called um, historical institutionalism where uh, you use history as kind of a laboratory uh, to better understand uh, modern institutions. Because in social sciences, you can't have a uh, a laboratory environment because the environment changes all the time. And so uh, you also end up with a principal agent theory. And and then uh, I got fascinated by the topic and wrote a thesis on it. So how widespread? was the commander structure. Is this uh, a curiosity or was it a no, kind of an... No, no, it was, it was more or less, uh, that's the amazing thing, uh, unchanged over... The oldest one I found, the oldest proofs I found are in the 6th century, imagine, uh, and it goes all the way to the 14th century. So we are talking six, seven hundred years. Uh, um, um, in fact, Muhammad's wife, uh, I, 
Kadisha was, was her name. Uh, her, her father was a venturer. And so uh, it's more or less uh, venture finance that, uh, <laughs> that financed uh, uh, his ascent to become a political and religious uh, leader. So uh, it was always this profit. The important factors was the profit share. It was in those days 25%, and it was always 25%, uh, as it is always 20% now. That, that's an interesting topic we might uh, talk about uh, a little later. Um, very important is limited liability, uh, because otherwise a Venetian family uh, couldn't take uh, other people's money to invest, because if they would have lost uh, the money, uh, without the limited liability, the, the, the whole family would have gone bankrupt and they would kind of be expelled out of Venetian society. So a limited liability, if you want, is the second important uh, um, ingredient. And the third is the limited duration uh, of those venture finances. For uh, It was then for one caravan for one project, for one voyage, like it is today, mostly for 10 years, and for very similar reasons, because uh, uh, thus the investor had the opportunity to decide if he wants to reinvest in the next project or not. And, and uh, on the other side, uh, the channel partner was forced uh, or was very much motivated uh, to to perform because otherwise you wouldn't have get gotten any money in the future. Okay, but before we look at some of the specific structural aspects and, and linking them across, can we just step back and in very simple terms explain you know who in this analogy is an LP and who in this analogy is a GP and what typically are the GPs doing? Yeah, so um, the the uh, uh, the projects I was most concerned and probably that's the majority were the sea voyages across the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, so a ship had to be built or chartered or bought um, and it had to be equipped uh, and um, uh, with a large crew, mostly it was galleys in those days. And so they would go typically from Venice to Alexandria in Egypt and then to Constantinople um, to their trades uh, and come uh, back after several months or even a year if they uh, got stuck uh, during winter. Uh, and uh, the, the uh, GPs were the merchants uh, on board. Sometimes the captain was also a GP. And the LPs um, were on one hand the aristocracy, uh, but it is amazing to see that it was really a retail business there then. So there were uh, nuns uh, uh, invested and the church was invested. Um, and, and so it was, uh, especially in Venice, where I know most about, it was quite widespread. So uh, um, a typical ship and the ships went in convoys in later days uh, was like a large fund uh, with uh, many LPs uh, going for a, a, a multiple-month expedition. Right, so you've got 
presumably mainly rich people, but, but, but also the church and perhaps even you know, some widows and orphans. They're putting their money together and, yes. they're, and they're financing these, these, these expeditions. Yes. Um, and so they're looking for a structure that ensures you know, that they're, they're going to manage their risk, presumably, and have a fair share of the upside. And so this is how the structure has, has developed. Um, it is interesting, there is a, a Spanish professor, uh, she teaches in uh, Valencia, and she uh, showed that uh, a one greatest, or let's put it this way, the commander only became important after uh, Venice stepped up the regulation uh, to a higher level. Many people will not like uh, to, to hear this, and I, no, I don't like to hear this because um, the end of my fund of funds business, uh, the happy end, uh, was regulation. It was solvency too. But so uh, I'm biased in the other direction normally, but uh, in, in Venice it is shown uh, that, um, that regulation was a prerequisite for, for, for the rise of the commanders before they had something called sea loans. Uh, and sea loans had this limited limited liability. If the ship would go under or would be taken by pirates, but it had a fixed um, interest. Uh, and so, um, um, and this was not a perfect. This was not a perfect reflection of the party's interest, because uh, from the investor's point of view. Um, the risk was high that the ship would be lost uh, and if it would be a home run um, as we would put it today he would still got only, get only his interest and from the merchant from the GP's point of view if he is very successful everything is good um, the upside will take care of itself uh, but if the business is difficult he still has to return all the money plus the interest and thus uh, be forced to lose all his profit. Uh, but the big difference, and this is what I, I'm aiming at, is the accounting for a sea loan uh, is so much easier than for a, uh, a commander or a li limited partnership because for a sea loan, you just have to return the, the principal plus the interest and that's it. Uh, but for a commander or a limited partnership, you have your income, you have the cost, you have to bribe the customs official, you have to have security and everything. And in the end, you do the profit share. Uh, and especially in those days, and today in some areas as well, um, it was too much of a moral hazard for the GP. Huh? And so what uh, Venice did is they regulated a kind of the whole, the whole voyage of the money and the goods. So uh, it, every ship had a scribe. Um, uh, all the goods were 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 sold and bought by public agents. In the important points like Alexandria, um, there would be a consul and a Venetian um, warehouse and a Venetian court, and only then. Uh, when uh, the investors were confident in, enough uh, that everything is going to be fair and uh, accounted for, uh, there was a sudden rise in around 
1230, where you can see uh, that the sea loans were reduced. The command, uh, most of 80% of the investments were commander, and this with a very large volume. So it's a very a, a larger volume. So it's a nice story how regulation can uh, create an environment for venture investing to thrive. I assume we are talking purely in the sense of analogies and people coming up with similar structures to solve similar problems, or is there some kind of direct line of sight between this type of regulation and the commender rules and today's European? No, no, there seems not to be. And uh, from my point of view, this makes it uh, even more interesting because um, one comes to the conclusion that there are certain types of risky ventures, um, the financing for risky ventures, that demand a certain contractual structure. And so it's kind of significant, and this is what this historical institutionalism wants to show, that in a totally different environment, um, a similar uh, risky structure was financed in a very similar way from today. And so, uh, if, if you want, uh, uh, the theory is the LP is the institution of choice to finance this kind of ventures, um, information asymmetry being the key uh, element. So, uh, the, the Doge of Venice in the 12th century knew as little um, uh, what the, his merchant, his GP, would be doing in Constantinople um, as um, the chief investment officer of a pension fund knows what his guys are doing in Silicon Valley. And so it's, it's very comparable structures that are uh, financed by comparable institutions. Yeah, I suppose some people might be thinking, well, this is a stretch in terms of the uh, um, asymmetries of information, but it's, it's not just that the pension fund guy just doesn't have access to the networks. He's also investing in a black box. So Exactly, you know. exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and so the problems uh, arising out of these situations are very similar. You are, one, uh, you are, you are, you are confronted uh, with um, moral hazard after you signed the contract, how do you de- how do you make sure that the GP doesn't cheat you? Uh, today uh, it is uh, via auditors and so on. And before you sign uh, the contract, the whole story is called adverse selection because the GP knows about his abilities and track record so much better than you know about him. And so this is uh, we try to deal with uh, uh, with a very thorough due diligence. This is why we do this very thorough due diligence, because of the information asymmetry. After you signed, you're locked up. And this is the similarity, because of course it is stretched. No? But I mean, for a German speaker, it becomes more obvious, because um, a limited partnership in German is a Kommanditgesellschaft. Uh, and it is identical. And obviously, the Kommanditgesellschaft 
comes from the word commender. Let's drill it. Can we drill into some of the specific aspects of the structure that kind of gave you your eureka moment? So you've already mentioned the the carry the you know the split of the property. carry is interesting. Let's talk about the carry. And um, one of my favorite is um, you know what a GP clawback is, Ross? Not everybody does. Uh, I do, but could you just give a? <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's talk about. Uh, let, let's talk first about the the GP clawback. Um, and so a GP clawback uh, is, um, and when I uh, did due diligence here in Austria, very few people knew, it's really a specialist insider thing. It is um, if in funds during the lifetime of this fund, the GP uh, gets too much profit share in the beginning and the performance of the fund gets less and less uh, uh, as time goes on, which is very often the case because the, the longer living companies are often the difficult ones, then the LPs need a methodology uh, to uh, get back uh, this, uh, the profit share that the GP got uh, in, in, uh, um, in uh, uh, too much in the first part of the, in excess of his uh, uh, real profit share. So uh, this is called a GP clawback. Uh, and there are different methodologies to do this. Um, the best, of course, is that if it's made clear in the uh, LPA that uh, the GP only gets his profit share after uh, all the capital is returned. Mm -hmm. um, and then there is then there is anything in between. There are escrow accounts where the GP has to put half of his money in the escrow account and so on. So, um, and I read in an Islamic commentary, which was from 1106, citing a, a scholar, his name is Shabayani, uh, and he wrote in the, in the 7th century, um, if someone uh, gets 1,000 dirham uh, uh, to invest and he comes back and he is successful um, and doubles the money and he returns uh, 750 dirhams to the investor and keeps uh, his share of 25, uh, 250 dirhams to himself and then reinvest, and then he reinvests the principal and loses it. And so Shabayani says um, he has to return his 250 because the profit does not arise before the capital is returned. <laughs> and I really use this uh, in one due diligence uh, uh, in New York. I remember it because it was exactly this discussion. Um, and I said already in the Ninth century, everyone <laughs> knew that you have to first return the capital before you are allowed to start thinking about your profit share. I so, was going to ask you if you'd ever actually had any practical use of, you know, yes, 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 yes. And it's uh, uh, it's it's something that is very useful. That is very useful um, because what I do think, and this is what people from Ilpa, would you pronounce it Ilpa? Yeah, yeah, that's right. 
uh, what people from ILPA uh, think is that uh, most of these rules have very good reasons, have very good reasons why they are like this. And we were talking about profit shares, but there are, of course, things like T-man risk and so on, uh, or fees. Um, in those days, there were no fees. So the GP uh, had to finance his own personal cost out of his own pocket. Only his burial was financed. If he would uh, uh, die in Constantinople, the investors had to, to uh, pay for his burial. But all his other costs was uh, uh, pre-financed by himself, and he was living off uh, the profit share of 25%. All right. Well, maybe in that there's an explanation for why we've landed with 20% and they've landed with 25%. There's, they didn't have the fees, but also the, it's kind of danger money as well. You're not going to die in Mayfair doing, hopefully not. That's what, one of the reasons, but um, still the whole question of, about um, this homogeneity of profit share, then 25 and now 20%, is kind of mysterious. It's kind of mysterious because um, now and even then, people were very able to to quantify risk normally. So, if you have a more uh, a risky venture, uh, you will pay more interest for your loan and so on. But in this case, um, obviously, people were not uh, able to quantify risk because it is a black pool, because there is information asymmetry, uh, and so. Um, people seem to tend to conventional solutions. And a convention is um, what you think that I think that you think I will propose to you. And this is, yeah. Uh, and so, and so uh, there is a Mr. Schelling who wrote a book about it, uh, about focal points. There's a certain tendency um, to, uh, if you, try to make those judgments to focus on the smallest possible denominator. So the first option would be half, two, uh, which is not fair. The next would be a third, uh -huh, and then you end up with a fourth. So uh, um, this is one of the theory, um, but it is not, it's not clear yet. And, um, I tried to find out. I tried to find out, and I wrote emails to um, people from the petroleum industry in the beginning of the 20th century, and to the first hedge funds, with, which I think were in the 40s. Someone must have reinvented the 20% profit share, and from there on, it did not change. It did not change. And it's yeah, a you, it's the yeah. same for uh, a very uh, conservative UK uh, buyout fund and for an Ukrainian startup. It will always be nearly always twenty uh, percent. You know the the exceptions of paying capital, making thirty or special agreements uh, of LPs and GPs, but in the center it's twenty percent. So if you really find out, let me know. Maybe standing back a little bit, what, what do you, there's a big kind of ongoing debate about the private equity structures and whether they're fair and whether they should be rebalanced or whether they should be optimized. 
what what's given your historical perspective what's your opinion on this? well um the striking difference uh, between those medieval and the modern contracts is the length um a normal uh, uh, a private equity a commander was a one pager uh, it just just set the date and, and the parties uh, where uh, uh, the merchant intends to, to go, the 25%, which defined that this is now a commander contract, um, and when he plans to return. And this was everything. This was everything. And so uh, what I, with my legal background, was always hoping or praying for uh, was a an international so uh, the reason for the contract being so short was uh, that all the rest uh, was clearly defined um, in statutes so here here you have the one from pisa uh, from what is it it's the oldest one i think it's 1126 or something uh, and then you had common law and so everyone knew what to do. And um, in the German environment, if you do a limited company, uh, you can do it uh, in the bar uh, on a one-pager because uh, it's uh, Ross and Hansi being the party. We give it a name. Um, uh, we give it a purpose. Uh, we write who gives how much money in the limited bar. And that's it. And all the rest is in the law. Um, and I think this is a big hindrance uh, for the development of uh, private equity, that there is not a, a, a codified institution. Mm. And this is uh, how I made my business, because very few people uh, in Austria then knew uh, the international private equity market uh, and and we are desperate going through these 270 pages uh, uh, of the NPAs. The longest uh, documentation was 3,000 pages. Uh, and so legal only, with side letters and stuff. And so I think this is that in many markets, and especially for the retail market, people are reluctant to do this, to do this, because uh, it's just too complicated. And if there would be, um, uh, and, and this is what ILPA should be aiming at, if there would be an international codified structure, like if you buy a stock on the a quoted stock market, I don't have to go through all the uh, Amazon contracts. I would never think about the contracts that Amazon wrote uh, uh, to get their stocks uh, on the stock exchange. So I think that's one big problem. Given the, the time-proven nature of limited partnerships, it's, it is odd that the, you know, the world of financial modeling, uh, the legal world, even the academic world, has always just seen it as a kind of a curious interloper and it's idiosyncratic. And it, exotic, know. exotic. Yeah, exactly. It's quite exotic. And this is not, there is no need for it. There is no need for it because in reality, uh, the properties of the private equity contracts are very similar. Uh, the profit share, the waterfall, um, 
the time, uh, the, the prolongation, and so on. And uh, to discuss this in a due diligence process is just a lawyer's game. RLPA is just a lawyer's game? What do you think? If you're watching on YouTube, why not leave a comment with your thoughts and press the like button? If you're on a podcast platform, please give us a rating and a review. It really helps. Until next time, thanks for listening.